Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is Men of God by Pastor Sean Wood. If you'd like to meet me in 1 Samuel 16, we will begin there and jump very quickly through the rest of this book. But uh, I want to, this morning I want to bring you part two of uh, a tale of two kings. A couple of weeks ago we spoke about King Saul, and I'll touch briefly on that in a moment. And today I want to speak about King David. And I believe there is a message for men in this room this morning from King David. But if I mention the the name Lance Armstrong, how many people here would know Lance Armstrong? Most people do. I come uh, from my my in-laws are a heavy, heavily cycling family. One of my brother-in-laws represented Australia in the world titles. Another one thought he was going to, but he didn't. No, I'm only kidding. But uh, we have a rich cycling background in my in-laws' family. And uh, Lance Armstrong was a name that we loved. We we loved Lance Armstrong. I mean, so many people got on the bandwagon with Lance Armstrong. He was a man that uh, was actually, he had testicular cancer, but his story is that he left it for that long that it had spread. By the time the doctors diagnosed him, uh, he had cancer, not only in his stomach, but all the way into his brain. And he was in bad shape. Uh, they took Lance Armstrong and they, they said, we're going to give you this experimental treatment. Who knows that if the doctor doctor says that, you need to pray. But we're going to give you this experimental treatment uh, and, and we'll see how everything goes. And he said, you know, he said I, his actual testimony coming out of that was, he said, I figured everything that I'd been through in the hospital wards meant that anything that happened to me on the bike was nothing, he said, because uh, what I went through was horrid. But we all love the story of Lance Armstrong. He's a guy that's beginning to defy the odds. You know, he's, he's a guy that should perhaps have succumbed to his illness. He's a guy that even if he was able to get over it, uh, maybe live a normal life, but ride a bike, let alone win uh, seven Tour de France. Now, these guys ride uphill faster than I could ever consider riding downhill. These guys say we have to keep an average pace of 55 kilometres an hour uphill. I know cars. My first car struggled to do 55 kilometres an hour uphill. But these guys are machines. And, and here's Lance Armstrong wiping the field. Here's, uh, everybody else is having an accident. Lance Armstrong hits the deck. He's back up on the bike. People love the story. But there was always this shadow over Lance Armstrong. He was tested many, many times. But everybody pointed the finger and said, something's not right here. Something's not right because there, it's not possible for a man to be able to do this. He was, he was mixing with shady people, the, the Italian doctor, Ferrari, not the car, the doctor. And rumours abounded. Journalists cornered him at news events. Anybody who challenged Lance Armstrong all of a sudden began to have a bad day. What actually happened was Lance Armstrong had constructed a world for himself, a world of lies. To keep that world going, he had to tread on people. He had to remove people. If he was threatened, he would deal with it. But you know what? When it all broke... When it all came out that Lance Armstrong was a fraud, that he, had, that he had taken drugs in every one of his seven wins in Tour de France, 
You know what? Most of the people were not angry. They were disappointed. Most people that were interviewed said, we're, we're enormously disappointed. Why? Because we, we want that story, don't we? We want to believe that there's men that can defy the odds. We want to believe that there's people strong enough to swim against the current. And when it all came crashing down, so did the hopes of a lot of people, to be honest. And of course, now, of course, the Tour de France is a clean sport. (laughs) Until you find a test that can find the drug that they're using at the moment. Lance Armstrong said something very, very interesting when he was asked by Oprah Winfrey. He says, do you consider yourself to be a cheat? He says, no, I'm not a cheat. And he was right. Why? He said, because a cheat is somebody that gains an unfair advantage over their opponents. And he says, that's not right. He said, because we were all using drugs. He said, I just had the best regime and the better doctor. This morning, I want to speak about one of the greatest needs I feel, one of the greatest needs in our family, one of the greatest needs in our churches, one of the greatest needs in our community is we need men of God. We need men, I'm speaking specifically to men, we need women as well. Don't get me wrong, we absolutely need you women. We can't cook. No, I'm kidding. But I can cook toast. But we need men of God because the term man of God in the Bible basically is somebody going against the current. You know, when when we use the term man of God in the Bible, we're talking men like Elijah. We're talking men like Moses. We're talking men like Elisha. When everybody else is going the easy way, we're talking about men that are taking a stand and saying, no, I'm going to stand for God. And the last time we see this written in the Bible is when Paul is writing to a young man pastoring an enormously turbulent church in Ephesus. And that man is Timothy. And Paul writes to Timothy and he says, But you, O man of God. Paul didn't use words loosely. And when he says to Timothy, you are a man of God, he's speaking to somebody that is amongst a culture and amongst a people that is standing out. He's put his hand up and said, I don't care what everybody else is doing. I'm going to do what's right. I don't care what everybody else thinks about Jesus. I'm going to stand for Jesus. I don't care how everybody else conducts their business. I'm going to conduct my business according to biblical principles. I don't care what everybody else is telling me the divorce rate is. I'm going to stick in marriage. We need men that are going to stand up and say, I'm making a stand for God. If you have a look in the Bible, when we had men of God, and we have men of God in this room, this is not a past tense term. I'm not here to beat men over the head this morning. I'm not here to rub our nose in anything. I'm here to stir you and impress upon you this morning. Because when we had men of God, we had vessels that God worked through and changed history. We have men in this room. We have men in this room that are going to identify with the story of David. You see, King Saul didn't get it. Lance Armstrong didn't get it. The last photo before everything became unraveled was Lance Armstrong sprawled out on his couch with seven yellow jerseys on the wall. They're not there anymore. They came and took them back. 
But he was boasting and he was bragging. And his story is, look, I've won seven Tour de France's. We don't care what you've won, Lance. We care how you did it. And what God's message to King Saul is, I don't want your sheep. Remember that? Samuel says, what's this bleating of sheep I hear? You're supposed to deal with the Amalekites. We're going to be introduced to the Amalekites again. God says, I didn't want your sheep and I don't want your oxen. You've missed it, Saul. I wanted you. And the difference between King Saul and King David is this, because they both made mistakes. We'll have a look at some of David's today. These guys both knew sin in their lives. Men, it's okay to make mistakes. Men, you're going to get knocked down. Get back up. The difference was God had David. David was a man after God's own heart. What we do see in the tale of two kings is God places his finger on two men. They are both have the Holy Spirit rush upon them. They both have a change of heart. One fulfills the call of God, one does not. And it's got nothing to do with physical attributes, nothing at all. By the time we get to 1 Samuel chapter 16, we see that Samuel has been lamenting the fact that God has rejected Saul. Basically, God says to Samuel, he says, you know what, fill your horn with oil because you've got somebody else you need to go and anoint as king. And in verse 6 of chapter 16, we see, we'll start there, it says, when they came, he looked on Eliab. Now, what's happening here is Samuel has been sent to the house of Jesse. Jesse has a number of, of sons. It's like, it's like my mother-in-law's house. There's just boys flowing out of there everywhere. My, my lovely wife is the oldest of seven in fact, sometimes I wonder whether she had seven girls. No, I'm only kidding. But, but he comes to the house of Jesse. He looks upon all these fine lads. He looks upon their, their stature. And every time Samuel's like, surely this is the one. But no, there's one that's not there. There's one you've missed, Samuel. He's out tending the sheep. And David is anointed king of Israel at the age of 15. The age of 15, David is anointed king of Israel. Verse 6, when they came, he looked on Elihab, one of the sons of Jesse, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on on the heart. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. I've got a, I'm going to solve a problem for you this morning. This is something I found in my very fleeting short life of, of 25 years. What I have found is this. If you were wondering who it is that God is going to use next, if you're wondering, I wonder who God's raising up, I wonder who God will use for that, look for the most least likely person around you. That's who God's about to use. Seems to be a trend. It was a trend in the Bible as well. Who was the most likely person that you would pick for a pillar of the first church? Peter was the most unlikely person. But have a look what Jesus does to his heart. And have a look what Peter does 
to first century Asia Minor because God used him. The Lord doesn't look for muscles. The Lord's not looking for heights. The Lord's not looking for your education. The Lord's not looking for the most affluent, the one who's, who's perhaps the most popular. God's looking on the heart. Study all you will. Go to Bible college for as long as you like. They're all good things. But if you haven't got the heart, men, the difference between King Saul and King David was the heart. Moving on to chapter 17, we begin to see a king's preparation. There are men of God in this room this morning and God is preparing you. There are men here that God has been doing and is continuing to do a work in. We always seem sometimes to run away from the preparation of God. But have a listen to Israel's king. He's talking to King Saul. Uh, Saul has still on the throne. Saul is still wearing the crown. Saul has a problem with the Philistines in battle. And David's trying to convince him that he's the man to go and face Goliath. We're going to touch on Goliath in a moment. And he says, starting in verse 34 of chapter 17... But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep the sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Here we have a young 15-year-old ruddy little shepherd boy. And what he's saying to the king of Israel is, I'm ready for this. Why? Because back when I was a shepherd boy, uh, I learned that whether it was a lion or whether it was a bear, anything that came against, I would rise up. And there are men in this room this morning, and you need to stop allowing the, the bears and the lions in your life to keep pinching and taking away what is rightfully yours and what God has put in your hands. Rise up because God is preparing you. Do not despise the day of small things because that's where God is preparing you. God is putting you on the anvil. We're going to see David's preparation didn't take five minutes. We're going to see in a moment how long that took. David's preparation wasn't an overnight thing. We're talking almost a lifetime of preparation. But by the time David takes the throne, David is ready. David has learnt some valuable lessons. We're talking a little shepherd boy that looks up at the stars at night and writes Psalm 19, the heavens declare your glory. A king's preparation. Most of us in this room would know the account of David and Goliath. And if we read on from where we were, verse 36, your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine, which is Goliath, shall be like one of them for he has defied the armies of the living God. And, and when, we, when we hear the account of David and Goliath, we always take the application that, you know, it's, this is God telling us to slay the giants in our lives. And yeah, that's, that's one application you can take from it, but, but we've missed really what the whole chapter is about. We've missed what this is really all about because this is when we begin to see the heart of a man of God because the problem with the Philistines 
line was he was coming, Goliath would come out and slander Israel and also slander God. And we've got a whole army full of men lining the hills. These, these men of Israel have lined the hills, but there's one ruddy little shepherd boy that stands up and says, it is time somebody fights for the glory of God. It is time for somebody to come against this Philistine and shut him up because we need men of God fighting for the glory of God. We need men fighting for the glory of God in their own lives. We need men fighting for the glory of God in their family life. We need men fighting for the glory of God in our churches, standing up and and prioritising the glory of God. It's amazing what God will do with what you have in your hand. I'm going to find out that a little shepherd boy with five stones and a little sling, what he is able to do. This, this Goliath, he was over seven feet tall. A bit like my brother over here, big guy. <laughs> You're far more handsome, Michael. The whole chapter about David and Goliath is simply this. It's about standing up for the glory of God. We need men standing up for the glory of God. You know, when Joseph was in Egypt, Joseph is miles away from his family. Joseph finds himself... uh, Remember that Joseph has this dream, but he finds himself not only separated from his family, but but really separated from that dream. And while he's in Egypt... (coughs) If all the hardship he'd suffered already wasn't enough, he finds himself in Potiphar's house. Potiphar realises that something is different about this boy and gives him charge of his whole house. But what happens is Potiphar's wife, while Potiphar is away, Potiphar's wife tries to seduce Joseph. And I love Joseph's answer because it highlights his heart. Joseph says, how can I do this thing and sin against God? What's Joseph saying? How can I? How can I so dishonour the glory of God? You know, Joseph didn't say, what if Potiphar finds out? Joseph didn't even think, what if my dad eventually hears about any of this? Joseph said, how can I do this and sin against God? Speaking about the priorities of his life. What we see is that David goes into battle. If we read down to verses 39 and 40, we'll start at verse 38. It says, Then Saul clothed David with his armour. He's going to face the Philistine. And he put a helmet of bronze on his head and he clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armour and he tried in vain to go for he had not tested them. And then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these for I have not tested them. And so David put them off. We live in a society today that just like this little shepherd boy, we live in a culture today that is trying to dress our men. We live in a culture today that is trying to tell our men that to be a man, you've got to find yourself at the pub. To be a man, you've got to be the best. To be a man, you've got to be strong. To be a man, you've got to be many different things. But we need to, just like David does here, he says, you know what, I don't need any of that. We need to throw all of that off and stop letting everybody else clothe us. Let God determine who we are. Because what happens here is a little shepherd boy takes five stones and one sling and one good shot, he slays that dirty Philistine and he upholds 
the glory of God. David put them off. If we come over to chapter 30, I'll give you a brief outline of what's happened in between. Remember, David's anointed as king. The prophet comes, anoints him with oil and says, you are the king of Israel. So put yourself in David's shoes for a moment. You are the king of Israel. You will lead Israel. And then what happens is he's serving Saul for a period of time. And then everybody that knows the story of David or anybody that spent any time reading the Psalms will know that what begins to happen in David's life counteracts the anointing. You know, it's kind of like, hang on a second, aren't I supposed to be the king? But I've got the king and his armies chasing me. Everybody wants to kill me. He doesn't know whether he should be with the Philistines because if you read through the history of David, he kind of aligns himself and protects himself with the Philistines for a period of time. And David goes through a wayward period of time in his life until we reach this moment at Ziklag. This is a prominent moment in David's life. And this is something that all of us men need to learn. Have a listen to what happens here. I want to read these verses, starting at verse one of chapter 30. It says, Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites, here we go. Saul, if you'd have done what you're supposed to do, we might not have this chapter. The Amalekites had made a raid against the Najeb and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Start to place yourself in David's shoes for a moment. Verse four, then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinam and Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and his daughters. Place yourself in David's shoes for just a moment. He's, he's gone through this period of this way. With, he comes from the Philistines and when, when he comes and he joins the army of Israel, he finds that they go back to Ziklag where all their women were and all their children were men. Think about this for a moment. The Amalekites were not nice people. And they've taken your wives and they've taken your children away as captive. And if that's not bad enough, all of David's men want to stone him. They're blaming David for this and they want to stone him. Things are looking pretty bad for David. And I don't know about anybody else in this room, but it's always at this point for many of us men, this is the crunch time for many of us men. This can be the time when we run and do anything and everything else except what David does here. And we need to learn to do what David does because what David does is, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. We need to, as men, stop making excuses. As men, we need to stop blaming everybody else. As men, we need to stop blaming our circumstances. We need to learn what it is to strengthen ourselves in the Lord and move on. Have a look at David's response. In Australian terms, when 
When everything hit the fan, what does David do? He runs to God. He runs to God. Coming over to 2 Samuel chapter 5. In verse 4, it says, David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. This is, this is prominent. We're, we're now talking 15 years. David has been chased by the king. He's had spears thrown at him. He's been slandered. Half of the armies wanted to stone him. And after 15 years of ups and downs, read the Psalms. They are, they are not always pretty emotions that David is portraying. But after, after 15 years of wondering when God is going to bring to fruition everything that's happening in his life. He finally takes the throne as king, and you would think that that would be enough. But he still fights. He still does not retain all of Israel just yet. They are slow to join him. He becomes the king of Judah. And there's men in this room who God has put his finger on. And I'm not talking years necessarily. I'm talking a space of time where God has put his finger on your heart. God has put his finger on your life. God has separated you. And you're in that same period that David's in. And I want every man to know your 30 years is coming. You've just got to cling on to God. Moses was 80 years old. I don't want to hear anybody in this room tell me I'm too old for God to use. Moses was 80 when God sent him back to Israel to set Israel free. I don't want anybody in this room to tell me I'm too young. Jeremiah was 12 years old when he first prophesied to the king. Imagine a 12-year-old boy. My boys are 12 years old. And if my boys said to me what Jeremiah said to the king, only God could protect them. Daniel, we think Daniel was like 40 years of age when he's taken into exile. Daniel turned Babylon and some of the most fiercest nations upside down. I remember I was listening to a testimony of somebody this week and Tim Keller was, was using it as an analogy of a guy that goes and he, he goes to visit the grave of a friend and he notices two graves down that there's an enormous oak tree that's grown up in between an enormous slab of stone. It's like this huge, great big slab of stone has been laid over the grave, and then after years and years and years and years, that little acorn has grown and split that stone in two and has grown up. And for many men, we're like that acorn. And for David, there were periods in his life when he probably felt like that stone was laying on top of him. But if we will allow God to do what he's going to do, the acorn is going to win every single time. That acorn will grow and it will split. It may take time and, and it's never going to be in your own strength. But, but on, from the natural, you take an acorn and a slab of stone, you're going to say the slab of stone wins. But in God, just like that oak tree, the acorn always wins. Daniel was like that acorn. God put him in the midst of an enormous great big stone. But he was like 14 years of age when he was taken into exile. And he puts his hands up with three of his mates and says, we're going to follow God. Men of God. 
Daniel survives four kings. One of them, Nebuchadnezzar, turns to God. God used him mightily. Another thing about David, and this is something that, men have, that, that sets apart a man of God. Does anybody here, we, uh, we all know of Joshua, right, and Moses? Uh, Joshua, Joshua grows up actually at the feet of Moses. And what we actually see with Joshua is early on we see the same trait that we do with David. We all know the song, um, when the spirit of the Lord is in my heart, I'll dance like David danced. <laughs> we, haven't, we don't sing that anymore and there's very good reasons why. <laughs> we don't want to encourage dancing. Well, here, that's why. I'm only kidding. But... But what we actually see with Joshua was Moses and Joshua and all the men, they would go to the tent. And one of the greatest leaders that would take Israel out of the wilderness was Joshua. But early on, we see when everybody else left the tent, this man would just linger in the presence of God. And the story behind David dancing before the Lord is the presence of God or the ark coming back to Israel. It had been taken captive. The Philistines had taken the ark and the ark was representative of the presence of God. You, you had to be careful how you handled it. On the, dis, on the travel back from, from the Philistines to, to Jerusalem, the guys pick it up the wrong way and they die because they mistreat the presence of God. But David was dancing as the presence of God was returning to Jerusalem because it was the presence of God that was the highest priority. We need men of God who are men of the presence of God, who know what it is to linger in the tent like Joshua, who know what it is to be overcome and dance. I promise I won't dance, but we need the presence of God. I want to finish with um, a warning to all of our men. And I spoke briefly once about this at a men's breakfast. But we now get to the point where David deeply displeased the Lord. And you can keep reading through Second Samuel and you'll find the account of David and Bathsheba. And what happens is, if you know the story, basically David sends Bathsheba's wife to the front line so that he will be killed. Husband, did I say wife? Yeah. <laughs> I was just seeing if you guys were listening. Yeah. Now everybody, you've woken everybody up, Terry. <clears throat> David, David sends Bathsheba's husband (laughs) off into battle and he is deliberately killed so that he can take Bathsheba as his wife and he commits adultery with her to begin with and I remember reading that and I remember saying to myself how does it get to that point how does a man of God get tempted in such a way that that happens and I I want every man to hear me here this morning because and ladies you need to listen as well no, I'm only kidding. But, but what we actually find is if you go back through the, through the life of David, we actually find that this was a problem with David, a small problem that he never dealt with. You see, back at the time of David and Goliath, uh, David was like, oh, here's this Philistine. And, and it wasn't until somebody walked past and said, the king has promised his daughter that David says, hang on a second, you've got my interest. What's going on here? And we see there's a little seed here 
That's, there's, a, there's, there's a little fox that's roaming around the vineyard of David right from an early age. You begin to see that he, he delights in, he has a problem with, with women. And another thing is, at the start of the chapter between David and Bathsheba, it starts off saying, when all the kings went out to war, so when it was time for the kings to go out to war, when it was the season for the kings to go out to war, David stayed in Jerusalem. And he just so happens to find himself on a roof. And he just so happens to see this lady taking a bath. And he just so happens to desire her. And so we end up on a downward spiral. And I, I've told this story before, but when I was in the forestry, we, we used to plant trees on rows. They used to, an excavator used to mound the rows. And there was one one particular coop that they came and said, listen, it's too steep. We can't get a machine on it. It's far too steep. So they said, we just burnt the coop and we just want you to go on free plant. But free plant meant you still had to plant in straight lines and only a certain amount of trees a hectare. And I found very soon that if one guy went slightly off course, that the next guy went slightly off course. And by the time you got halfway across the hill, the, the rows went from that to that. But it didn't happen in one foul swoop, it happened in small little incremental compromises. And so we find the same with David. And men, I need you to hear me this morning. Small foxes will spoil the vine. Deal with the fox. Before you get to Bathsheba, deal with the fox. Uh, uh, does anybody like air crash investigation? I remember watching, uh, yeah, air crash investigation, great. I, you don't fly, that's why I don't fly. I've always said I'd rather take a boat than fly because I can swim but I can't fly if something goes wrong. But uh, I remember watching this devastating plane crash and unfortunately everybody on board was, was killed but when they traced it back they found that the maintenance guy that had replaced the panel, missed one rivet. One rivet was all he missed. One small, tiny rivet. And then as they're in the air and the differences in pressure and all that sort of stuff, it starts to play on that. And the next thing you know, it ripped an enormous hole in the side of the plane and the plane plummets into the ground. So I, I carry rivets with me every time I go flying now. <laughs> but that's a great analogy of how sometimes when we neglect the smallest things in our lives how they can overtake us and tear us down. Israel wanted to lynch David after this. They wanted to lynch him once they found out what had happened. But what happens with David is, what we do find in Psalms 51, we find a difference between him and Saul because Psalms 51, David says, create in me a clean heart, O God. Because Nathan comes and tells him a parable about two shepherds and some lambs. And David's, Nathan says, what would you say about this man? David gets enraged and says, oh, he must pay. And, and Nathan turns to David and says, you are that man. And David didn't kill Nathan. David didn't deny it. David repented. Men, you need to hear me this morning. You are not going to repent once in your life. David lived a life of repentance. He lived a life of coming back and back and back to the feet of God in repentance. And when he uses the word create, he's saying, God, you need to make something, you need to create in me a clean heart because there's not one there and I can't make one myself. We can't do it ourselves and God, I need you to do it. 
And the rest is history for David. He is actually Israel's greatest king. We find two snippets I want men to take away this morning. First one is in Psalms 119. It says, David says, O God, I have kept your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. We need men of God who are men of the word of God. I'm not interested in what everybody else has told you. I'm not interested in what the new 10-step guru plan is. I'm not interested in those things. I'm interested in what the Word of God says to men. Men, we need to take hold of the Word of God. We need to keep the Word of God in our hearts. Second one was, David says in Psalms 119, he says, the Lord is my portion. And what David is saying is, God, you are enough for me, and you are all I want. The difference between David and Saul was the heart. They were both sinful men. They both disobeyed God. They both committed sins. But David had a heart that was soft and tender. David had a heart of repentance. He was a man that kept God's word in his heart. And he was a man that would stand up and say, the Lord is enough for me. Men, I want to ask you a question this morning. Is God enough for you? Is God enough for us? I, would, I, I came this morning to encourage men that we would grab hold of the message that we find in David. We need men of God. We don't need more Lance Armstrongs. We need men of God who will stand and hold God's word in their heart. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, Subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.